stop on the Esther train. This is it. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like we just began this thing, and, and really we did. Uh, two months ago, we started this series, an eight-week series, and this is week eight. We're at the end of this thing, closing the books on what I would argue is one of the most fascinating stories in all of the Bible. Um, we, we've got a good bit of ground to cover this morning, and so let's, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, Esther chapter 9. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, you should find the book of Esther just to the left, a couple books prior to the book of Psalms. So find Psalms somewhere in the middle, move to the left, and Esther will be there. If you don't own a Bible or that translation that you brought with you is a little bit difficult to track with, please take uh, that Bible underneath the row in front of you as the church's gift to you. Let me, let me just pray for us and we'll, we'll dive in and we'll get to work this morning. God, I, I pray that all of the things that we've been talking about for the last couple of months as we've worked our way through this story uh, would, would all come together for us this morning in a way that makes sense. I pray that as we will see in this morning's passage, uh, we see the Jewish people celebrating, feasting, getting a little bit rowdy in light of your work of redemption in their lives, your rescue, your deliverance. And I pray that we would experience the same God, I pray that all of the, the theology, the, the orthodoxy that we dive into as a church often, I pray that it would work its way deep down into the recesses of our being and would stir our affections, God, that we would be a people whose affections are awakened for you, not just a people who grow into a bunch of theological bobbleheads, but, but rather that we would be a people who experience at a heart level the things that our minds uh, engage in as we come into this place and as we spend time in your word together. God, may we never be known, Cross Point Peachtree City, as a people of dead orthodoxy, but may we uh, be a people who are known for getting a little bit rowdy because of who you are and what you've accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Would you help us to even see that in this morning's passage by the power of your spirit? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Here we go. Last time I'm going to say these words, previously on Esther. As I've said for weeks now, the story of Esther takes place against the backdrop of the Persian Empire, the largest, most powerful empire to exist up to that point in human history. As a result of the Babylonian exile, many of the Jewish people find themselves scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And it doesn't take long for us to see that this is a story filled with conflict, the kind of conflict that poses a real threat to the Jewish people. What, what starts out as a personal clash between two men, uh, Mordecai the Jew and Haman the Agagite, that personal clash leads to a call for the mass genocide of the Jewish people. As Haman, the king's right-hand man, establishes an edict of death, and the Jewish people are essentially told that they have 11 months to live. It's a terminal situation. Meanwhile, just so happens that Mordecai's cousin Esther has become queen of the Persian Empire. And so Mordecai leverages his relationship with the queen, calling for her to intervene on behalf of the Jews. 
As a step toward that intervention, Esther exposes the wickedness of Haman, the Agagite. And in one of the greatest reversals of destiny in this story, Haman goes from the king's right-hand man to dying a shameful, humiliating death as he's executed on the very gallows that he had prepared for his mortal enemy, Mordecai. However, as we saw last week, all is not well in the world. Though Haman is dead, the edict declaring the mass genocide of the Jewish people is alive and well. And so Esther goes before the king and she begs the king to uh, revoke this edict calling for the destruction of her people. There's only one problem. This is the land of irrevocable law and the edict has already gone out across the entire empire. The only hope for the Jewish people is to have a new edict issued, one that would make the original edict uh, difficult, if not impossible, to implement. And the good news, as we saw last week, is that the king is willing to allow for the establishing of this new edict, which declares that though the Jewish people will be attacked, they're permitted to defend their lives. They're permitted to destroy any who might seek to destroy them. The new edict providing hope to the Jewish people goes out by way of the Pony Express across the entire empire. And upon receiving the news, the Jewish people are filled with gladness and joy, celebrating their newfound hope in the midst of imminent death. That's where we pick up the story here in chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says this, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, in the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Well, there you have it. Pretty anticlimactic, isn't it? No walking us through the events of the day before telling us the outcome. No leaving us in suspense with a, a big reveal at the end of this thing. The author of Esther essentially says, on the day that the Jewish people should have been destroyed, they were victorious. The reversal occurred. The tables were turned. Game over. Conflict resolved. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it, how anticlimactic the remainder of this story actually is as we move from intense plot development over the course of eight chapters to now what we'll see as we move forward in chapter 9, the reporting of information that we would expect to see in a history book. But that's actually in line with the theology of the book of Esther. The outcome has never really been in question. That God will not allow his covenant promises to go unfulfilled. The story of Esther is the story of a promise-fulfilling, covenant-keeping God who will do whatever it takes to make sure that his redemptive purposes are accomplished for his glory and the good of his people. Verse 2 goes on to say, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed, here we go, Parsandatha and Dalphin and Espatha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. I'm going to take an extra vacation day this week just for getting through that. 
You, you would think that the second edict here, allowing the Jewish people to defend their lives, you would think that that would have prevented anyone from attacking them, right? But as evidenced in these verses, that's just not the case. There are those who still choose to seek to carry out the first edict calling for the mass genocide of the Jewish people. And so the Jewish people defend their lives as they're allowed to do by way of the second edict. And they end up taking some lives in the process, including the 10 sons of Haman, which is an indication that Haman's sons sought to carry out their father's hatred, just like Haman sought to carry out the hatred of his forefathers. Going back to chapter 3, remember Haman was introduced in this story as Haman the Agagite, his lineage tracing back to one of the first people groups on the planet to attempt to destroy God's covenant people, having attacked the Israelites in the wilderness as they were journeying to the promised land. We we mustn't forget, when when you think about the, the bigger story of redemption, God's big story of redemption, that God made a promise to our first parents in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 to send a hero to rescue us from sin and deliver the death blow to the serpent Satan's head. God made a promise to Abraham to make him the father of many nations, to bless those who bless him and curse those who dishonor him. God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai at the beginning of their nation. In faithfulness to his promises, God will do whatever it takes to preserve a people for himself. Meanwhile, Haman's ancestors were willing to do whatever it took to destroy the very people that God was attempting, seeking to faithfully preserve. And so God pronounced a curse on them. Later, when Saul became king, he was directed to destroy Haman's ancestors which Saul failed to do, setting the stage not only for Haman to come into the world in the first place, but also for Haman, just like his ancestors, to seek the destruction of the Jewish people. And now, here in chapter 9, we have strong indication that Haman's son sought to follow in the footsteps of their father, just like he sought to follow in the footsteps of his forefathers. That in the destruction of Haman's sons, you, you really have two things happening here. For one... You have the Jewish people doing what their ancestors had failed to do, which is to finally and ultimately do away with those in most hostile opposition to God and his promises and his commitment to preserve a people for himself. And second, you have the destruction of Haman's sons as the ultimate completion of Haman's downfall in this story. Remember in chapter 5, if you were around for chapter 5, where Haman had this public reading of his resume for his wife and closest friends because he's the arrogant guy in the story. Remember that? And we're told in Esther chapter 5 verse 11, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. As you come to chapter 9 this morning, The splendor of Haman's riches have been taken from him. His estate handed over to his sworn enemy. His position of power and authority has been taken from him. As Mordecai now sits in the very position of power that once was Haman's. His honor has been taken from him through his parading of Mordecai through the city square. As well as his dishonorable death on the gallows. So that when you get to chapter 9, what's the one thing on that list from chapter 5 that hasn't been taken from Haman? The answer is his many sons. 
And again, that just resonates with the language of Father Abraham, doesn't it? God promised to preserve a people, to give Father Abraham many sons, to make him the father of many nations. And here you have the many sons of Haman destroyed, the ultimate completion of God's great reversal. The downfall of Haman, the anti-God in the story of Esther, is finally complete here in chapter 9. Moving on to verse 11, it says, That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them but they laid no hands on the plunder. Up to this point in, in chapter 9, there's not really the appearance of any sort of ethical conundrum. You have a group of people defending themselves from attack. You have no mention of the killing of any women or children. And we're told three different times in this chapter that the Jewish people laid no hands on the plunder, which supports the idea that there's not this shedding of blood for selfish gain. And again, it supports the idea that the Jewish people here are doing what their ancestors failed to do. As Saul was not only commanded to destroy those who were seeking to destroy God's people, but also to leave the plunder. And Saul failed on both ends. Saul let, let his, God's enemies live, and he also took some of the plunder for himself. Here you have the, the reversal of that. You have God's people doing what their ancestors failed to do. However... When you get to verse 13, you begin to move into more ethically questionable waters. In fact, Esther's request in verse 13 for a second day of killing is considered by most scholars to paint Esther in a negative light. There's almost full-on consensus there. That there's something troublesome about verse 13. That the first edict declaring the destruction of the Jews was only for one day. So the idea that the Jews would need to defend themselves for a second day doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. We, we don't know. Perhaps this is a dark, vindictive moment for Esther. After all, the author makes no effort to exonerate her or to justify her request here in chapter 9. If you read other parts of the Bible, we know that the Bible has absolutely no problem showing the dark side of God's chosen leaders, even in their greatest moments of glory. Just look at King David, a man who committed adultery at the height of his greatest military successes. Maybe this is not a justifiable moment for Esther. But maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe there's some morally justifiable reason for uh, her request that's unbeknownst to us. It's that recurring theme of moral ambiguity in this book. The author doesn't invite us into the, the motives and intentions of the characters. We're left to speculation. Coming back to Haman, it, it, there's a little bit more clarity there, I think. If you believe Haman to be the anti-God of this story, which... which I would argue he is. I don't know if you've wrestled with this question. Why is it that 
in this story filled with morally ambiguous characters whose motives and intentions were never told, why is it that there seems to be much more clarity with respect to Haman's motives and intentions and some of the wickedness of his decision-making in this story? And I would argue this. This story is a story of reversals. It's a story of God turning things upside down on their head for his glory and the redemptive purposes and joy of his people. And if God is the hero, it's really hard to show both the unseen God and the unseen forces of evil at work. The both end of that is really difficult to communicate through a narrative. And so you have Haman, a human character, functioning as the anti-God, which is why it makes a whole lot of sense that you see Haman's ultimate and perfect downfall and destruction throughout this story. He is the anti-God of this story, the opposite of the, the unseen God who is at work for the preservation and redemptive purposes of his people. If you believe that to be true, if you believe Haman to be the anti-God of this story, one thing that does seem to make some sense is the hanging of Haman's sons. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, we're told this, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Perhaps what Esther is doing here in requesting the hanging of Haman's sons is seeking to visibly display the sign of God's curse upon those who have made themselves his ultimate enemies. And we see it in the gospel, don't we? As Jesus hangs on a tree, bearing our curse in our place. Verse 17 says, This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. That you see this throughout the scriptures. With the victory comes the praise. It's pretty common to Israel's history, right? After the Egyptians were swallowed up by the Red Sea, Moses led God's people in a song of praise, Exodus 15 tells us. After Israel's earliest victories in the land of Canaan, Joshua led God's people in covenant renewal at Mount Ebal. We're told that in Joshua chapter 8. After God delivered his people under Deborah in the time of the judges, she led the people in a song of thanksgiving. That's Judges chapter 5. And let's not forget the annual celebration of Passover in light of God's rescue of his people from Egypt. With the victory comes the praise, and that's certainly true of the story of Esther, as a recurring annual celebration is called for here in chapter 9, commemorating the great reversal of destiny for the Jewish people. 
verse 23, goes on to say, So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep those two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. We're, we're talking about here at this point in the story of Esther, we're talking about the inauguration of the first religious festival since the days of Moses. This is a big deal for, for the Israelites. We're told here that this recurring celebration is to be called Purim, from the word pur, which means lot or die, as in singular of dice. It's a, it's a reference of Haman's rolling of the dice back in chapter 3, leaving the day of destruction of the Jewish people in the hands of the gods of fate. Even the word lot helps us to make sense of what's going on in this story. It's where we get our word lottery, which is ultimately a game of chance. For Haman, it's all about chance. It's all about destiny left left up to the gods of fate. The Feast of Purim here is a declaration that destiny doesn't lie in the roll of the dice, but in the hand of the living God, a God who never stops working through his unseen hand of providence for his glory and the good of his people. One of the songs that the Jewish people sing every year in the celebration of Purim includes these words up on the screen. They sing, all the world was struck with amazement when Haman's Pur became our Purim. Again, it's this declaration of a great reversal having taken place. God turning the sorrow of his people into joy. Verse 29, as we close chapter 9, says, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. And letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Again, this celebration is meant to be passed down from generation to generation, and thus it's recorded so that it might not be forgotten, and it hasn't been forgotten. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the celebration of Purim continues to this day. Every year on the day of Purim, the book of Esther is read in its entirety in the synagogue. This entire book that we've worked through for the last two months is read in its fullness in the synagogue, in the Jewish synagogue on the day of Purim. And during that reading of Esther, I might have to go check this out at some point. During that reading of Esther, people break out noisemakers. They get rowdy. Every time they hear the name of Haman, they boo out loud. Doesn't that just sound like fun? They break out the good wine. They eat jelly-filled pastries, the filling representing the hiddenness of Esther's identity as well as the hiddenness of God throughout this story. It's really fascinating. It's a celebration of God's deliverance of the Jewish people. What a great way to end this story. 
right? With the inauguration of an annual block party in response to God's rescue. Except that it's not how the story ends. Look at chapter 10, the last three verses, picking up in verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The the ending of this story is, is really intriguing. Throughout the book of Esther, we've been told of one reversal after another, usually something devastating being turned into something good. But here... We get the exact opposite to close the story. If you remember, when Esther was crowned queen of the Persian Empire, what happened? There was a remission of taxes. As the story of Esther comes to a close, we see the king imposing taxes on the entire land. You've heard it said you can count on two things in this world, death and taxes. Maybe that comes from the story of Esther. I don't know. Because here you have the Jews escaping death and the IRS comes calling. What a weird way to end a story, right? In the end, the whimsical, arrogant, unscrupulous king of chapter 1 is still on the throne, and he's still taking from others in order to accommodate his lavish lifestyle. Yes, Mordecai is second in command, seeking the welfare and peace of the Jewish people, but the end of this story screams of something better needed, a better king, a better, more lasting peace, a better reversal. You begin to understand why the Jewish people would walk away from a story like this and conclude that the Messiah must come like Esther and Mordecai, grabbing hold of political power and authority in order to bring ultimate deliverance to God's people. And then what happens? Jesus shows up and he declares, I'm not here to overthrow Roman rule. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. It's bizarre. It's upside down thinking according to human standards, but it's perfectly in line with the God of Esther, is it not? A God who turns things upside down on their head. As Ian Dugit says in his commentary, to kind of put a bow on this thing, he says, in the book of Esther, we see the tossing sea temporarily driven back through God's grace and providence, but not yet finally stilled, which awaited the coming of one greater even than Mordecai, one who would be the prince of peace for whom Isaiah looked. This coming one would still the raging sea of wickedness once and for all and would proclaim full and final peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. Yet he did so not by waging comprehensive holy war on the historic enemies of God's people, the Gentiles, and destroying them utterly, but rather by destroying the ancient enmity between them and God. He came, Jesus, not as a mighty warrior, but as the Prince of Peace, In Christ, former Amalekites and Jews are now brought together into the glorious peace that flows to the one new people of God. Yet, Dugid says, our peace has a great cost. Peace was established for us by God declaring holy war on his own son. All of the ugliness and pain of the entire history of holy war were concentrated into six hours of awful agony and the burning darkness of the cross. 
His body was not merely tortured and brutalized by the Romans to the point of death, but was exposed to cosmic shame by being hung on a cross. There's that Deuteronomy 21 language. Like Haman and his sons, Jesus' body was hung on a tree, the ultimate sign of God's judgment curse. On the cross, Jesus fully bore God's curse upon our sin. Why? So that we might receive peace through his righteousness and have rest from all our guilt and sin and access into the life-giving presence of God. So incredibly easy to forget about Purim, quote-unquote. The disciples literally forgot, which is why they were filled with such sorrow and agony and fear in the wake of Jesus' death. They forgot that God is the God of great reversals, the God of Esther. What about you? Is that something you need to be reminded of this morning? That the God of Esther is the God of the gospel and the God of your story. So incredibly easy to forget about Purim. And yet at the same time, the truth of the matter is that every one of us in this room, we are all Purim people. We all celebrate, do we not? You can learn a lot about a person by observing what they celebrate and what they grieve. So let me... Let me ask you, what do you celebrate? What, what do you get excited about? What jazzes you? What, what causes your heart to get a little rowdy at times? What motivates throwing a, a few steaks on the grill? Unless you're a vegetarian and then I don't, whatever you throw on the grill. What motivates that? As Christians, our, our greatest motivation for celebration is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been rescued. We've been delivered from the edict of death that hung over us as sinners, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. We've been given rest from all of our strivings to attempt to merit God's favor. The door to everlasting peace has been opened to us. And we have an opportunity to respond as God's Purim people, devoting our lives to, to the rhythmic rowdiness, you might say, of feasting and singing in celebration of, of who God is and what he's done for us. Going back to last week, we the church should be a really rowdy bunch celebrating God's goodness, glory, and grace. Two of the ways that, that people celebrate most naturally, and we see it in the celebration of Purim, singing and eating, which makes it all the more glorious that we do just that every single time we gather in this place as the church. We, we enjoy a meal of celebration as we receive of communion, and we sing the praises of our triumphant Savior and King. We do both of those things every time we come into this space. Welcome to the party. That's what this is meant to be as we come together. And then as we leave this place, we're meant to take the party out into the streets, out into the city square, out into the marketplace of ideas. It's a party that we've all been invited to by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. If you're not a Christian, consider this your invitation to the party. You, you don't have to bear the curse like Haman and his sons. Jesus bore sin's curse of death on your behalf so that you could know the joy of life in Christ. Come to him, even now, with nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith, and join the rest of us in celebrating the greatest reversal that the world has ever known. We get to do so even now in a couple different ways. I just mentioned them. We get to, to take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, our, our joyful declaration that our fate doesn't lie in the roll of the dice, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ, amen? 
And we also get to sing, kind of wrapping up what this book says about God. We get to sing to the God of great reversals. We get to sing to the God who rules over kings and nations. We get to sing to a God who invites us to participate in his great work of redemption. We get to sing to a God who's at work in the most seemingly insignificant events of our lives. We get to sing to a God whose redemptive purposes and plans for his people cannot and will not be thwarted. A God who loves us, a God who pursues us, and a God who keeps us by his grace.